you're here, you can be seated. Uh, and whether you're here at home, I encourage you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you would, to uh, Psalm chapter 8. Again, whether that's a Bible that you have in your hand or your app, however you want to do that, please turn to Psalm 8. Uh, as you're getting those open and uh, getting settled, let me just take a moment to say thank you. You know, uh, this morning I'm preaching here, and Brother Andrew is preaching over at the South Wilson, and we do what's called collaborative preaching, which means we we study together and get our points together. So we're basically preaching the same messages at both locations. And uh, Brother Andrew was on vacation this past week. So he came back last night, and he's preaching this morning. And the week before is when I was on vacation. And so what he did the week I was on vacation, he jumped ahead, and he did a lot of the prep for this message today. And so I like to give props. We have very smart staff, and Brother Andrew did a lot of the groundwork today, made my job easy when I came in this week because he'd already done a lot of the, the hard stuff. And so I just want to give him props today. And so if you all see Andrew sometime, uh, just tell him you're proud of him because he is such a smart guy, and I, I even benefit from him being on staff today. So I just want to give him uh, props uh, this morning. But we're going to look in Psalm 8 today, and we're going to talk about the unexpected majesty uh, of God. Now, I, I don't know about you, but here's what I've experienced over the last several weeks and months. I've found it hard to know what is true. Anybody else been like that? I mean, when I look and I see all this information that's coming at us anymore, I, I don't even really know what to believe anymore. You know, I hear one report that tells me that the coronavirus is exploding and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And then I read another one that says, well, not really. We're just testing more. And so it looks like there's more cases everywhere. I see one report that says it's so critical that we wear masks wherever we go. And then I see another one that says, no, if you're a healthy person, you shouldn't wear that mask because of the CO2 levels that it creates under that mask. So it's actually dangerous to your health. And so I hear all of this stuff and I get done and I say, well, what is it that I'm to believe? I, I, I really don't know sometimes. And here's what I end up wondering or knowing, that my judgment of the situation is often affected by my experiences. And here's in the end, you know what I really want to believe? What I want to believe. All right. All right. Anybody with me? I mean, that's the way it is. I mean, again, it, it, it's often our experiences and our judgment of a situation that determines what we end up believing. You know, for me, I look around and I don't necessarily know anyone personally who's had COVID. And so I look at it and say, well, maybe it's not such a big deal after all. But then somebody else that I know, they know somebody who has had it and maybe even died from it. And so they're, 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 the way they see it is much different than the way I see it. And again, I even confess oftentimes that my view of the situation is also affected by this. It's affected by my sin in my life, which is my sin of self-centeredness. Like even when I view the racial tension in our society, I have this natural tendency to view things in regards to what is best for me. And so what we do is we base our opinions and our actions on experiences and selfishness when everything should be viewed from God's viewpoint. In fact, as a Christian, I may even know that, but what I want is my viewpoint to prevail. Now, here is something that we must confess that is true as well. That your viewpoints affects how you approach life in general and then in specific situations. A person's viewpoint can make one person say everything's going to be okay. And the next person is, we're never going to make it through this. However, what we should be asking is, what is God's viewpoint? And what does God want me to know? And what does God want me to do? In fact, our differing viewpoints of life point out an even greater problem. It is a problem of failing to see God correctly. A.W. Tozer famously wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, these words. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And there is much truth in that statement. 
Tozer went on to explain how if a person starts with the wrong view of God, then everything else we do is corrupted. It is important that we see God clearly, seeing him for who he is and how he has revealed himself to us allows us to see ourselves, others, and the world around us clearly too. Now, we must acknowledge this need because so often our expectation of God does not match up with the reality of God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. What we want to do is start with what we see and hear and know from our limited experience as as imperfect creatures in a broken world, and we try to define an eternal holy God by those things. And when we do, this is what we discover, that God is not who we expect him to be and does not work the way we expect him to work. As we look into Psalm 8, we're going to see David speak about the majesty of God. And what we're going to discover is that this majesty is one that we do not expect. It's truly an unexpected majesty, one that we need to see clearly. Look at what David writes, and I'm going to read the whole psalm, and then we'll come back. But look what he wrote. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set into place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, David begins and ends this psalm with the same statement. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The name that David is declaring and using is the name that God used to identify himself to Moses and the people of Israel. It was his covenant name that connected him to his people. But David makes something very clear in his declaration that God isn't just the God of Israel, but he is the Lord of all. He is great and mighty everywhere and rules over all the earth. He even rules in the parts of the earth where he isn't worshipped, where he isn't believed, and where he isn't obeyed. And when David sings about the name of the Lord, he is singing of the nature and the character and the reputation of the Lord. Those in Israel would sing God's praises because of him rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. They would sing of him leading them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And they would sing of how God sustained them even despite their pattern of sinful disobedience. And of all the people of the world, Israelites had a reason to sing. And their king David was a leader of God's praise. However, David again is pointing beyond just God's work with his covenant people but with all people. Remember, we are all God's creation, are we not? Right? We are all God's creation, and we need to know that we are all God's people. And because David bookends this psalm with the same refrain, we are called to look at what stands between, and what we discover between the refrain is David celebrating the majesty of God, the majesty that calls us to marvel at this reality first, that God reveals his majesty in unexpected ways. You know, we may have thoughts about what is true of God, But the truth is not necessarily what we expect. You see, when we look at this psalm, we don't really know exactly the events that inspired David to write these songs. But here's what we do know. We do know who inspired him to write these words. It was God who inspired him. And as we go through Psalm 8, there's a pattern that emerges. 
I mean, it reads as if David is arguing against an invisible opponent. It's as if someone has said to David, well, if God is the majestic ruler of the earth, then God will do this, this, and this. And then David responds in a way saying, God's majesty might not look how you expect it to look, but here is how God has revealed his majesty. David then goes on to paint a picture that defies our expectation of how a majestic king would look and behave. And in doing so, this psalm corrects our view of God so that we can respond to him as we should. With that in mind, here's how we're going to approach looking at Psalm 8 today. We're going to first consider how we expect a majestic God to be and to behave. We are then going to look at the reality revealed in the text about God and how he is at work in the world. And then we will consider how we should respond. And so if you printed out your copy of the worship outline and you're following along, the pattern will be this. It's expectation, reality, and response. And so as we begin, think about what comes to mind when you think about the word majesty, okay? You hear the word majesty, what is it that comes to your mind? Maybe what comes to mind for some is the image of a king. In fact, think about a movie that you may have watched. And on that movie, there was a king. And then someone approaches the throne, and they bow before that king, and they say what? Your majesty, right? That's what they do. They bow and say, your majesty. The person bows and graciously acknowledges the king because they recognize the power and the authority that the king has. Now, as you play that image out, what you continue to think about with a king is a person who then surrounds himself with power and strength. I mean, most of the time, the king is flanked with guards on both sides to protect them, all right? Then the king does what? They bring the wisest people to be around them, to be their advisors. And then on top of that, what does the king do? The king surrounds himself with a powerful army, the most powerful army around. Why? Because we know that strength is a deterrent to the uprisings within the kingdoms and to threats from outside the kingdom. You see, this is the image we get and the image we expect. Therefore, because that is our human perspective of majesty, we are tempted to apply that same expectation to God. Therefore, when we think about who we expect God to call as his people and who we expect God to surround himself with and to carry out his mission, here is what we expect. We expect God to call the strong or the smart, those we assume with the most to contribute, to come and take up his cause. I mean, that's how we would expect God to work if we just apply human understanding of majesty and strength to God. As David starts his psalm by saying, you have set your glory above the heavens, we might even think that's exactly what we're going to see in regards to God. If God is not just majestic in all the earth, but his glory is above the heavens, then it must be a realistic expectation to think that God will show his strength by calling those who are strong. I mean, warriors who are well-trained for battle and advisors who have been well-studied and full of knowledge. But look at what David wrote in verse 2. He said, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. From whom is God's strength established according to this verse? Who? Babies and infants. Consider those two words, all right? David chose those two words of nursing babies and infants or toddlers. And babies and infants would not be our choices for images of strength, would they? Absolutely not. They are actually just the opposite. For us, they are the images of innocence, of dependence, and yes, even weakness. Babies and infants are vulnerable and dependent upon others for their care. But that is exactly the point. 
We might expect a majestic God to call those who are strong, but catch this. But God calls the weak in order to reveal his strength. See, David was well aware of this as he thought simply about the history of God working with the Hebrew people. When the Hebrews were in bondage in Egypt, God chose Moses, a man who by his own admission had a problem speaking, to be the one who would go before Pharaoh and lead the people out of bondage. When we look at the Israelites moving even into the promised land and conquering the occupants there in that land, the Israelite army didn't win by their own strength, but they won by God's strength. Think about this. Think about marching around Jericho and screaming and the walls come down. It didn't have anything to do with the army strength, did it? It had everything to do with God. And then when the Israelite army was faced with battling a giant named Goliath, where did the victory come from? Not from their most trained and well-equipped soldier, but from a young man named David who refused the king's armor and went armed with a sling and stones. You see, David understood clearly that God used what appeared to be weakness in order to reveal his strength. In fact, David himself was an example of how God used what was weak to show his strength. You see, David knew that it is how God worked in his day. But let me say this to all of us here today. God does not change. All right? And he still works that way today. God calls the weak in order to reveal his strength. The apostle Paul knew that as he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 1 where he said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wide." God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." You see, some of you this morning might be offended by these words in 1 Corinthians because you're serving God and you've been all excited about what you've offered to God, but now you hear the scripture say that God chose the weak and you don't like that, right? Well, if I bursted your bubble today, you're welcome and that's okay. Don't let the reality that, 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 that is not your strength or that impresses God or that, that it's your resume that impresses God. In fact, take great comfort in knowing that God works in this unexpected way. I mean, there is freedom in this unexpected majesty of God. He didn't call you for your strength. He didn't call you for your wisdom. So don't think you always have to have it together. You don't even have to prove your strength or your competence because your effectiveness for God is not based upon what you do, but what God chooses to do through you. Right? You hear me? That's so freeing. Again, we expect God to call the strong when in reality he calls the weak in order to reveal his strength. And so we are left to ask this question, what is our response? See, David points even to the answer when he says this, out of the mouth of babies and infants, God has established strength. Paul points to the answer when he said, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Then Jesus gives clarity when in Matthew 21, 16, he quotes this psalm and he says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared what? Praise, all right? And praise the Lord for rain, right? right. Amen. Yeah, go ahead, all right? Now here, what then is our response? What is our response to this unexpected majesty of God where he chooses the weak instead of the strong? We sing the strength of God. 
Our lips should be filled with the songs of the majesty and the glory and the strength of God. We should be praising him not just in a building or not just in our homes or in our cars, but everywhere. We should be constantly singing the praises of God. You see, it is right for those who accomplish great things, who know God, to give him praise. But it is up to us all to be singing the praises of God every day and letting the world know that he is our strength. In fact, even in the midst of, of difficulty, we should be singing his praises. And think about all that is going on around us in the world today, folks. The answer will not be found in the most intelligent or the strongest taking center stage. The answers will only be found when God's people step up and sing his praises and help the world know that he is the answer. Only God will bring the reconciliation we are longing for. Only God will give the peace we need. And it is up to God's people to sing his praises, whether that be in the words that come out of our mouth or the words that we type with our fingers or even the things we hit like or share on our social media. And when we sing God's praises appropriately, the world will, will then see the unexpected majesty of God that calls the weak to sing his praises. Now, as David continues, though, we're going to see another unexpected majesty of God. In verses 3 and 4, David looks at the heavens and he describes them as the work of God's fingers and declared how God set the moon and the stars in place. Now, when I was on, I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago, I spent a good portion of my week building a deck for my mother-in-law. Her old porch was deteriorating, and with her cancer, there's this expectation that at some point she's going to need a ramp. So I took time to build that deck, and you might say I, I set it into place. I, with the help from a couple of my children, dug holes for the post, set them in concrete, and step by step built a deck that I hope will be there for some time. And if I can do it, this is what you know. It doesn't require someone with enormous strength, right? But what David recognized is that God, hear me, God set the moon and the stars in place with much less energy than I used in building that deck. And what God has built is set more firmly than anything I set on that deck. You see, some might look at my mother-in-law's deck and say, that looks nice, but let's be honest. It does not compare to marveling at the moon and the stars that God set. They testified to the majesty of God. The moon and the stars are beyond description and beyond comprehension. The heavens are so amazing that some scientists are still trying to explain them apart from God. And I'm here to tell you, apart from God, they will never be able to explain them. You see, our God is great. And when we think about the heavens and marvel at God, here's what we might expect. We expect God to keep us at arm's length. In fact, isn't that how the majestic acts typically? I mean, think, think about the scriptures. When I read in the scriptures, I think of the story of Esther when she was king, queen. And what did she have to do to go in the presence of the king? She even had to go ask permission as the queen to go in the presence of the king because majesty often keeps people at a distance. Think about even our time. Think about the president of the United States. You are not going to just start, you're just not going to walk up to him one day and start talking to him, are you? Absolutely not. If you do, this is what you might discover very quickly. You're going to be quickly subdued by some pretty strong people, right? You might not like the position you find yourself in. Nothing else, do this. Go to the White House and look at the fence that are around it and consider the security that is around that because they're keeping people at bay from the president. Because those with power typically keep their distance from those who don't have power. Therefore, when we think about the majesty of God, whose majesty is so much greater than any earthly authority or power, we might expect that he would keep a distance from us. 
I mean, if he spoke the universe into existence, surely he's going to have nothing to do with us, right? I mean, why would he care for me? We expect God to be at arm's length, yet even though that is our expectation, the reality is this, that God comes near to care for his people. Look again at how David marvels at the unexpected majesty of God in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? We need to see these words for what they are. David genuinely marveling at the fact that God in his greatness is still mindful of and cares for humanity. And folks, as I watch the way people are acting these days, I even more wonder why God cares for us. Right? Do you? I mean, the way people are acting, God's heart has to be breaking. I want to marvel at the fact that God could still love us. But can I say this? He still does. Amen? Isn't that a good thing? He does. As we look at this verse closely, it can help us to understand that the word translated as mindful is the same word translated elsewhere as remember. Like when God would recall his covenant promises and show mercy to his people. It is the time when God remembered Noah and those with him in the ark. It is when God remembered Rachel and heard her cries for a child of her own. It is also the word used when God asked his people to remember their plight in Egypt and how he had rescued them. This word mindful or remember is a word that is central to the relationship between God and his people. Central to God's relationship with his people where he promised to never leave them nor forsake them. And God proved to remember and to be there for his people. God was with them in Egypt. He was with them in the wilderness. He was with them in the promised land. He was with them when they worshipped him. And he was even with them when they had sinned. You see, God is mindful of his people, but he also cares for them. Caring, meaning to visit or attend to and look and to look at that relationship with his people. See, think about this. When we look at God's relationship with his people, he has always cared for them. I even am reminded that shortly after Adam and Eve sinned. Do you remember what happened shortly after Adam and Eve sinned? Do you all remember what happened? What did God do? He came and visited them. He came and met with Adam and Eve in the garden. And not only did he do that, you know what else he did? He took care of their needs. Do you remember? It says that God made him a covering for their nakedness. When you study that, it's ultimately pointing forward when God was making a covering for our sin, all right? When Jesus' blood would be shed for us. And so, listen, folks, God has always cared for his people. We might expect him to be at arm's length, but no, he always cares. He comes to meet with his people. He takes care of his people even when we do wrong. And let's be careful to remember that when Jesus came, listen, what do we see? God being mindful of his people and caring for them. Caring for them so much that Jesus took on flesh to care for us, to care even enough to die for our sin. Again, we might expect God in his majesty to keep us at arm's length, but he does the opposite and comes to care for his people. And so let's ask this question, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this kind of God? The first thing I say is obvious, that we should draw near to God who cares and who comes near to us. It is accepting his love. As we understand what God has done, it means placing your faith in Jesus, the one who died for you to take care of your sin problem. It's following Jesus with your life. It is the first and most important response that anyone could have to a God who is mindful and cares for you. But I also want us to understand that we should respond in another way as well. We should reflect God's care 
and our care for others. Hopefully you're familiar with this short verse in 1 John 4, 19 that says, We love because He first loved us. It is a verse that makes something very clear. We are able and should love because God first loved us. God makes our love for others possible, and God's love demonstrated for us what we need to do. Loving and caring for others should be a natural part of a believer's life because it is reflecting God. Then another passage Christians should be familiar with is in James 2 where it says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. You see, this passage reminds us that we are loving as God demonstrated and desires, then that love must be a love in action. If we are loving others, we should pray for them. That is where love should start. But along with our prayers, there must be action. We can love and support people with our words, but words must be followed by actions. Remember, we might think that God in his majesty would keep us at arm's distance, but God comes near to care for his people, and we should do the same for others. I don't know if you about know this, but the world often looks at Christians as people who are aloof. You know what I mean by that? The world often looks at Christians as, as people who, who want to keep an arm's distance from those who are not like them. What they think Christians like to do is just keep an arm's distance and criticize. You know that, right? But let me say this. But believers must care so much about others in the world that we draw near to them and care for them. It is Christians who must draw near to the poor and love them. It is Christians who must draw near to the homeless and love them. It is the Christians who must draw near to those struggling with addictions and love them. It is Christians who must draw near to those struggling with unwanted pregnancies and love them. It is Christians who must draw near to those struggling with sexual identity and love them. It is Christians who must draw near to families who are struggling to stay together and love them. It is Christians who must draw near to children who are being neglected and abused and love them. It is Christians who must draw near to those struggling with the physical or financial hardship to the coronavirus coronavirus and love them. It is Christians who must draw near to those struggling against racial and social injustice and love them. Do you get the point? I could go on today, but listen, that's who we are to be. It is Christians who must draw near to those folks in this world. The world may look at Christians and they may assume that they're going to be distant and maybe again, as I said, from that distance, judge them, but we must reflect the majesty of our God and instead of keeping people at arm's length, we must draw near and care for others and we must reflect God's care that he has for us. Now, there's one other thing that God shared, or David shares about God's unexpected majesty that we will look at, and then we're going to close. As we consider the pattern of expectation, reality, and response, we will see that we expect God's glory to make our lives insignificant, but God crowns us with honor and gives us dominion. We've seen that God calls the weak, and we have seen that God comes near to care for us. We can accept these things to be true, but still have this feeling that God isn't going to trust us with anything significant, Right? I mean, surely there is a limit to the unexpected majesty of God. I mean, we expect God's great glory to make our lives insignificant. It would seem to be a logical conclusion. I mean, yes, God cares about us, but it isn't like what we do or say or think really makes a difference, right? I mean, that's the view that so many people have of God. That's what many, even Christians and believers, that's what they believe, and that's how they wind up living their lives because, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is in control. And when we understand God's majesty purely from a human perspective, we don't expect there to be much room left for what we do or say or think because, in reality, God doesn't really need us. 
right? That's how we think sometimes. But yet again, expectation does not equal reality because David even proclaimed this in verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. We expect God's glory to make our lives insignificant. The reality David stated is it's, it's different than that because he goes on in verse 6 to even say, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You see, the reality is just the opposite of the expectation. This language of even crowning with glory and honor is royal language. It's God's designation of us as his royal representative. It echoes Genesis 1 where God created us in his image to reflect his glory and nature on the earth. And part of that is the significant work that he has given us. He has given us dominion over creation, the work of his hands. He has given us the important work of exercising dominion as we care for the animals and, and the birds and the fish and every created thing. In fact, in Genesis 1.26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You see, God crowns us with honor, and he gives us dominion. We have to ask this question, then what is our response to the crown of glory and dominion that God has given us? Well, first, let's say what it is not. It should not be to boast in ourselves. And to seek our own glory. We must understand that the glory and honor that we have been given ultimately is the Lord's. It ultimately belongs to Him. And it should not be used to pursue our selfish gain with no regard to other people or other parts of God's creation. So then, what does it look like to exercise the dominion that God has given us? Our character should reflect God's character. Our work should reflect the way He works. Our response is this. We pursue God's glory with passion and purpose. As Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he said this. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of the Lord. In other words, whatever we say or think or do, it should all point people to the glory of God. It should all be to help people see more clearly the unexpected majesty of God. Like David, as we marvel at the glory of the God of all creation, we should pursue his glory. We should live and work at whatever we do to make him known. That is the right response of people crowned with glory and granted dominion. God's pronouncement in Genesis 126 echoed here in Psalm 8 is for all humanity. We know where that, that's, that, that's, um, that, that's one where all humanity, this is the area where all humanity has failed. In our attempts to be God, here's actually what's happened. We become less like God. In our attempts to be God, this is what we have done. We have pursued our own purposes and our own glory instead of His. The Apostle Paul tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the, can anybody finish it? Glory of God. Yes, we were created to pursue God's glory with passion and purpose, but in our sin, we do not, and we cannot. So what is the answer? David is pointing us to the answer in Psalm 8, but the author of Hebrew makes it more clear for us. For in Hebrews 2, it says this, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been tested somewhere, or testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, here's what the author of Hebrew tells us, our answer is Jesus Christ. In other words, God has given us dominion and glory, but we have failed to pursue that correctly and instead pursuing our own glory. And so what we needed is to be rescued, all right? We needed to be redeemed so that we can be forgiven and restored so that we once again could pursue God's glory with passion and purpose. And so Jesus, or God sent Jesus so that he might redeem us. You see, Jesus suffered for sin and now sits at the right hand of God the Father who has put everything in subjection to him. He died so that we can have eternal life. He was raised so that our sin can be put to death and so that we can live for God's glory once again, live with that passion and purpose. We can live the way God intended. See, how do we do this? Well, here's the question. As we get ready to wrap things up, we have to first ask this question. Are we living for God? Have we given our life to Jesus Christ? Again, we failed, right? Why? In part because we had a wrong expectation of God. In fact, because we had a wrong view of reality. But now as we look into Scripture, what does it tell us? How are we going to pursue and be who God wants us to be? We first look to Jesus Christ and give our life to Him. And so the first question today is this. Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you been redeemed? Have you been forgiven? Have you been restored? If not, let me tell you, today is the day to give your life to Jesus Christ. And more than anything else, what we want to do is talk with you about how you can give your life to Jesus and how today you can be restored and fulfill God's glory and purpose in this world. But I also want to ask you today, maybe some of you here say, I, I know Jesus. I already know that. But I can I ask you today, are you living today with the right passion? Are you living with the right purpose? Maybe a good way to answer that question today is look at your calendar, look at your bank statement. Does it reflect today that your priorities are God? And what he wants us to do? Let me ask you today, if people in this world around you, if they have the wrong expectation of God, does your life help them see the right image of God? If today they look at God and they think God is some God who is so aloof out there that he would have nothing to do with us, does your life show that God is a God who came near and that God is a God who cares? Are you caring for others in such a way that it shows that that's the God that we serve? Today is your life, a life that when they look at you and the purpose and the passion that you have, does it show them that there is a God who have given them, given them passion and purpose as well? If not today, believers, we need to change our life. We need to bring our life into the reality of who God is. Not who the world may expect him to be. Maybe not even who we initially would expect him to be, but who the scripture says Jesus is and says who God is. In fact, Folks, what we started with earlier, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, right? So today, are we thinking correctly of God? I know, again, we as finite creatures, we have a hard time seeing him correctly. But David has in this psalm given us great things to consider about this God and to change our expectation. And my hope today as you've looked and maybe as your expectations have been changed, maybe today your response needs to change. And I pray today you will respond correctly to our God because, listen, he is a God who cares. He is a God that has a passion and a purpose for our life. And we need to be singing his praises each and every day. In fact, we need to do as David did at the end. We need to be declaring, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, 
We bow into your presence today, Lord, knowing even today that, God, we need our minds changed, our perspectives changed today by you. And so even now as we come to this final song, this song of, song of reflection and this song of invitation, I pray, God, that you will speak to our hearts. And, Father, if there's something been out of you of you today, God, that we would get it right and that we'd have a proper expectation of who you are so that we would respond correctly. And I know there are some today that maybe didn't think God cared. Maybe today they understand that and they know now above all that he cares by, because he sent Jesus to die for them. And so I pray if there's one who's never given their life to Jesus, today would be that day. But for all of us, Father, please help our perspective to be right and to know, Lord, that we need to be singing your praises. And, Father, we need to be living, living with passion and purpose today. And, Father, help us to do that. And so today, even if in our life we need to have something changed, Lord, change our perspective that we would even be those people out there caring for a lost and dying world in the way that we care would let them know that you care and that you love. And so bless this time of invitation. I don't know what you want to need to do in our hearts, God, today, but you move, God. You speak to us. And I pray that we're listening and ready to respond. And as I pray these things, I pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.